Welcome to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. Our guest today is Adam Shapiro of Frontline Defenders. Frontline Defenders is an incredible organization that specializes in supporting and defending human rights activists who have been targeted for their work, targeted by states and corporations and others, all with the intention of stopping them from doing their work. I've actually been planning this interview for almost a year, thinking of what I might ask and what I might learn, and I'll tell you why. If you've been listening to this show recently, you know that we've been spending a lot of time talking about the Palestinian activist Issa Amro. Issa is currently on trial before an Israeli military court and before a Palestinian authority court, in both cases for his nonviolent activism. We've been talking about his life, we've been talking about his work, and about the intense targeting he faces every day because of this work. We've been talking about the detentions, the arrests, the beatings, the threats on his life. And now what I want to do is zoom out a bit, because Isa isn't the only activist going through this kind of thing, far from it, and that's where Frontline Defenders comes in. As of now, not only is this organization tracking ISA's case, but they're tracking 425 other cases of human rights defenders at risk. That is what they call them, human rights defenders. And they call them that for reasons that I learned about in my interview with Adam, reasons having to do with the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights Defenders, which was passed unanimously by the UN General Assembly and which comes with certain expectations. It comes with a special rapporteur on human rights defenders and with formal mechanisms of reporting, things like that. So what does frontline defenders do for these human rights defenders? Well, like I said, they specialize in these cases all over the world. Go to the website and you will see stories of Iranian trade unionists, Cambodian environmentalists, a Belarusian education rights activist. You will see how each has been targeted, often going back several years. Frontline Defenders is tracking it all, reporting it all, so none of these people will fall through the cracks. On top of that, it engages in advocacy with official bodies like the United Nations, where it enjoys a special consultative status. It offers protection grants to help pay legal fees and medical bills when defenders are physically attacked. It helps with security, including digital security. It can even evacuate a human rights defender and temporarily relocate them if their life is in danger. And I think my favorite of the services it provides, which is so incredible and is invitation only, I should say, is that for those defenders who are truly verging on burnout from everything that they do and everything that they face, the organization will scoop them up and bring them to Ireland where it is based so they can rest and recuperate in a safe and protected place. And if you go to their website, you will see that there is a hotline that a human rights defender can call and be transferred to a person speaking any number of languages to connect with services. So we're going to talk about a lot in this interview. We'll talk a bit about ISA, a bit about how to help human rights defenders. But I'm going to start at the place where we were talking about that hotline I just mentioned. Again, this is Adam Shapiro of Frontline Defenders. 
Yeah, we have that emergency line and we do, you know, people reach us a whole number of different ways. They can reach us, you know, usually somebody from the organization via email, phone, WhatsApp, Signal. So on our Facebook page, we have people reaching out to us, defenders reaching out to us. So there's a whole number of communication channels we are regularly monitoring and responding to and, and defenders come to, you know, we try to be available in whatever means by which a defender at risk reaches out to us, including sometimes just through a third party, you know, um, another organization or a family member or somebody else might find out about something happening to a defender and will contact us and we'll take it from there. So we we do have the ability to respond in a, within 24 hours and on a 24-hour basis. We have our headquarters in Dublin, but we have staff located around the world. So we're in lots of different time zones. Is there an area that you that you work predominantly that you find okay this is this is kind of the hot zone right now where we have a ton of cases or how is it distributed? Not, I mean, it it kind of depends. There are, there are different types of risks or threats to defenders that are more common in certain regions or countries that have shown this kind of pattern or trend over years that we can certainly identify. So, for instance, every year we release in our annual report a list of human rights defenders who've been killed in the previous year. And consistently, the same five countries pretty much top that list. So we're talking about Brazil, Honduras, Guatemala, Colombia, and the Philippines, and and sometimes Mexico also makes it into that top five or six. So, you know, it's safe to say, that doesn't mean that killings of defenders doesn't happen elsewhere, but it it certainly does. I think last year, the total number of countries in which there was a defender who was killed was over 40. So it does happen, you know, in many, many places and in every region. But in those countries I named, we are consistently seeing those as being the places is where you know dozens of defenders are killed in in each year and so the threat of being killed as a human rights defender particularly as an environmental rights defender or land rights defender or indigenous rights defender in those countries is far greater a risk than even a place like South Africa, which has seen killings of human rights defenders pretty consistently each of the last you know 10 years but not at the same level you know, none of the same numbers that we're seeing, you know, in in a given year, we might see 40 or 50 defenders killed in one of those other countries I mentioned, whereas in South Africa, it might only be one or two. So that's not to say that you're safe (laughs) in South Africa, Uh, you might find yourself at other forms of risk. And so for instance, we do see in other regions, women human rights defenders, for instance, facing much more problems of sexual harassment and attack than, than in other regions. Criminalization and the type Type of criminalization that happens is more common in some countries where there's this effort to sort of make it look like it's the rule of law and therefore defenders are doing something quote unquote illegal and therefore the state is using that as a way is basically using the law effectively in an abusive way to go after or target human rights defenders and do that you know, effectively in order to silence them, to impose cost on defenders, you know, and where they don't use things like killing or physical violence necessarily. We see, for instance, in Turkey, the widespread criminalization of civil society with journalists, with other civil society activists and members, even targeting organizations for being shut down. Pretty much widespread tactic in in Turkey in the last four to five years, whereas we might not see that tactic being used in in another country, let's say like, um, yeah, well, Egypt today actually is another good example of criminalization. Um, But uh, 
there are other countries where we find physical threats, physical violence and killings, a much greater threat to defenders than, than legal problems, for instance. And I think you, you talk a little bit about judicial harassment, legal harassment on, on the website, just as, as a tactic and what the, the purpose of this tactic and why it's used. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what that does to an activist. The process of criminalization uh, or judicial harassment and targeting really accomplishes a number of things at the same time for the state or for the stakeholder that is bringing the complaint. So it could be that the state itself, the government or local authorities are bringing charges, or it could be that a complaint is being made by another party against a defender for the purposes of criminalization. And, and what we are seeing and noting increasingly is that businesses, particularly those in the extractive sector or dealing with you know, agricultural land use, et cetera, companies are filing complaints against offenders who are engaged in protest or engaged in trying to expose corruption or expose bad practices by these companies. They get targeted with different kind of either lawsuits or complaint criminal complaints against them by the companies. And often these companies are involved in corrupt practices involving local politicians and local authorities or sometimes on the national level. And so therefore are able to influence the judicial system so as to criminalize the defender. What this does for the defenders is it has multiple effects. Um, in the first instance, a lot of times this will involve detention for some period of time. It could be an initial period of detention where they're simply arrested, charges are filed, they're brought in front of a judge and granted bail. And if that's sometimes like the best case scenario in terms of when the defender is facing charges where they can be released pending trial in, in a fairly quick uh, way. Usually that's going to involve some sort of bail, which of course imposes a cost on the defender, on their family, or on their organization uh, or community. And so right away, just the basic act of somebody being detained and then trying to get them out in their pretrial phase or until the, the charges are fully investigated and, and formally filed with the prosecution imposes a cost, an immediate cost. That can be devastating. It can be devastating to a family. It can be devastating to an organization and also to a community. And so that right there, you can see that there's the sort of economic element just in, in one step of uh, criminalization. Add to that then, anyone who is facing charges is going to need legal representation and is going to need support for their case. This can obviously impose additional costs. And while there are lots of really good pro bono lawyers out there doing really important work and human rights lawyers and law firms in various countries, there's still a cost. So that cost has to be borne either by the, the defenders themselves or by the law firms who oftentimes are also operating as uh, nonprofit organizations and therefore are also trying to you know raise funds to do the work that they're doing. There might be limitations in terms of the kind of support they can provide legally. Um, certainly, if a case is involving a company uh, or the state for that matter, those entities usually have much greater resources sources available for prosecuting legal cases. So there's an unbalanced playing field right away. Uh, and then those costs add up. Um, we find that 
that states will, uh, local authorities will prolong cases. They won't meet filing deadlines and then ask for extensions or just simply in some countries just won't turn up <laughs> to hearings, forcing judges to delay, you know, a hearing to another date, even though if the prosecutor doesn't show up, you would think that the judge could potentially throw out a case. That's that's a rare occurrence. Usually the judges will give the leeway to the prosecuting side to skip hearings, even without any warning. Effectively, these are delay tactics. And what this is meant to do is to, in the cases where the defenders are in jail, to keep them in jail for longer periods of time, just simply through these bureaucratic processes. Or if the defenders, and in both cases, if they're in jail or out of jail, just to continue the the trial going, to keep the process going, to continue imposing a cost, an, an economic cost. And then it also ties up the defender from doing their work. So the defender who, the human rights defender, who normally would be documenting human rights abuses, exposing corruption, investigating things, standing up and advocating for the rights of their communities or, or whatever they're working on, is now having to spend time defending themselves and presenting their case and, you know, dealing with all that is involved with when there's a criminal case against someone. So there's that element of it, the cost. And then one other, you know, clear outcome and certainly goal, I think, of those who would be prosecuting these cases is to smear, defame, you know, raise questions about the defender in their larger community. Human rights defenders, although they're almost always doing work that is benefiting benefiting a greater good, a, you know, a larger community or the environment or some larger group of people than just, you know, themselves and their family members, they often do this without really sort of explaining or doing public awareness work to raise awareness of to, among the community that they're supporting about what the work it is that they're doing. They're so busy focused on doing the work, they're not really presenting their, for lack of a better term, their brand <laughs> to, to our wider audience. And so we find almost anachronistically, a lot of times defenders don't have support or civil society organizations don't have widespread public support in the communities in which they're working and on whose behalf they're working. And it it seems kind of like this, you know, illogical setup. But when you think about it, it, it makes sense. They're again, they're quite busy doing the work and trying to expose corruption and trying to document abuse and spending most of their time doing that. They don't have resources from from donors to do um public campaigns to to build support among the wider community or among the wider public. Even if they did, getting commercials on TV or advertising in newspapers or advertising on radio or any other sort of broad public outreach uh, within their communities would be difficult. Social media provides some leveling of that playing field, but increasingly we're also aware that it's, social media isn't really free media and that also has a cost with it and often is easy to to sort of outmaneuver with fake media and fake news and, and things like that. So defenders are at a real disadvantage when it comes to even their own uh, reputation in their communities and in the wider society. And we find that companies and states do invest efforts in terms of shaping the media, in terms of shaping how cases are presented, in efforts to defame and smear and demonize human rights defenders. They refer to them as terrorists. They refer to them as anti-development for those who work in the in sectors dealing with economics or, or extractive industry or things like that. So Typically, I think the response from defenders is to try to just ignore the defamation and smearing or just to sort of not give it any kind of oxygen from their side. However, it 
as with any messaging that gets out there, eventually the more it's out there, the more it's repeated and it goes unchallenged, the more people tend to either believe or just by having it hammered home in their heads, start to accept the legitimacy of that messaging. So when a defender is criminalized, it can often fit into a view or an idea of a defender uh, or of those specific defenders that has already been framed by those who are going, you know, persecuting them by the state or by other stakeholders. And so it has reputational damage. Sometimes we'll either confirm or further advance this idea that defenders are people who are themselves corrupt or harming the interests of the larger society, et cetera, which is usually the polar opposite of what the real of the what the truth is. And so that that can have, you know, devastating longer term consequences for the work of the defender, for the trust in the community, and even in some cases worse put a mark on that defender's back, you know, that targeting that person with violence would be welcome in some way. And and we have seen that where defenders who have been killed have often faced not only threats previous to their killing, but also some measures to defame and smear them publicly as if to sort of mark them for attack, um, which of course is horrible, but is nonetheless a factor that many defenders are facing in their lives. So much of what you're saying does sound a lot like um, some of the things that are happening to Issa Amro. One of the things, you know, this sort of endless trial, and it was one of the questions I was going to ask you was, you know, given that this the the Israeli trial, I think, has gone on since 2016, and, you know, it is postponement and, and things, it just seems to take a really long time. So I think, well okay, maybe this is just how these trials go, but it, you can almost start to think, well, maybe we shouldn't be that worried about it. You know, there was this huge campaign when the charges were announced to, you know, free ESA and to, you know, get members of the U.S. Congress to write letters on his behalf, and, and that happened. But, you know, the trial is still going, even though it keeps being postponed. So, you know, he's still incredibly, I mean, I, I shouldn't speak for him, but you know, it must be stressful. It's important. I mean, Issa's case is important for a number of reasons. I mean, one element of it that is important to note that you referred to the kind of campaigning that had been going that had gone on for him, even though his case continues on seemingly in perpetuity. um, The fact that he's not in jail is in this context, incredibly important and a mark of, I would say, success of the international campaigning efforts, because when it comes to the, the the situation for Palestinians and Palestinian human rights defenders, because they're under the Israeli military um, legal system, if we want to call it that, the Israelis are able to maintain what they call administrative detention of Palestinians without limit, without end, basically. Usually, what they will, what the authorities will ask for and get is a period of three months for administrative detention for a Palestinian. And during that period of time, charges don't have to be filed. You're effective, the the Israelis justify it by saying that they are holding that person either to investigate further or as a preventative measure, because they suspect that that person would be involved with something nefarious if they weren't uh, behind bars, or because ultimately they're trying to turn that person into an informant and they find that this is the effective, you know, an effective way to, to do that, and therefore they just hold them in administrative detention. And although the law permits this to, to occur for three months, 
The law also permits the Israeli authorities to continue renewing that administrative detention, again, in perpetuity. And so the fact that Issa is not, has not been subjected to, at this point, administrative detention prior to charges being filed and during the subsequent trial itself is, I believe, a result of the uh, international attention that his case has brought and the, the activism that's gone on around it in that the efforts have sort of imposed a cost of sorts to the Israelis reputationally. That the case has gone on for this long, I think, is an indication that there just isn't evidence, really. And <laughs> the, the idea that somehow a judge would throw out a case for lack of evidence, a military judge, that's just anathema to the Israeli system uh, of control over Palestinians. So this, this trial will continue until such date that they can probably present enough of some sort of case, fabricated or otherwise, that would allow the judge to render a verdict of guilt of some sort against Isa. And I think that's probably the likely outcome. Whether that then is matched by some sort of penalty afterwards, it would be to be determined. And, and anything like that could uh, be used, you know, at various times to keep Isa from doing additional human rights defender work. So basically, he's in a situation now where he's on trial. He's got this pending case against him that's ongoing. Any work he takes undertakes now as a human rights defender will place him in jeopardy of making it look more like he's a quote-unquote troublemaker and give the court, the judge, and the, the prosecution is already prosecuting him effectively what they would consider to be ammunition to use against him in that ongoing trial. So it's extremely stressful. <laughs> and it it certainly conditions every day, even if Isa chooses to ignore it, even if he chooses to say, like, despite the fact that I'm on trial, I'm going to continue with my human rights defender activity. That's still a consciousness and a conscious decision he has to address with every action that he takes. Um, and where, where does the Palestinian Authority trial fit in with all of this? The Palestinian Authority trial is slightly different in that the motivations of it for the motivations for that case are different. Um, over the years, we've seen the Palestinian Authority increasingly out of touch with the Palestinian public, and it is extremely allergic to criticism. And of course, social media has become a space where Palestinian a lot of Palestinian activism is happening. It happens targeting the, you know, what the Israelis are doing and therefore imposes a kind of cost on the Israelis becoming, you know, social can social media campaigning and, and outreach to people and educating about what's really happening on the ground. But similarly, it's also something that that is used to call out corruption and other problems with the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian Authority, as with most authoritarian type uh, regimes doesn't like critique and criticism. And so, but the Palestinian Authority is in no, is in no position to control social media whatsoever, unlike some other governments out in the world, which are more able to control social media or access to social media. So instead, there have been these putative efforts to criminalize what people are posting on social media. And Issa is not the only one who's been detained for a Facebook post or facing charges. And it's not just the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank that's doing this. Hamas-run government in Gaza is also doing this too. So it's, uh, it's across the board. And so, yeah, I mean, in that sense, it's, it's somewhat different. Although, again, it's, it is an attempt to silence. It is an attempt to intimidate. Basically, Issa, I think as my personal view, was probably targeted, even though plenty of other people have posted, you know, plenty of other Palestinians have posted 
critique and criticism on social media against the Palestinian Authority. Uh, Issa, because of his stature, because of his, of his international reputation, etc., has a wider audience, let's say, than a lot of other Palestinians. And the Palestinian Authority would be concerned about that. They would be concerned that his voice would reach places that others wouldn't. And so therefore, you know, targeting him, I think, is part and parcel of uh, just their, their, like I said, their allergy to critique and criticism. That said, I would also just add, although I don't have any, I don't think there's any necessarily, you know, obvious evidence of this. There is security coordination and cooperation between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli uh, military authorities in the occupied territories. We generally tend to think of that security coordination in terms of like when people are arrested or there are operations being conducted by the Israeli military in Palestinian territories. And we think of it of security co- coordination in that regard. But in this case, we know that, that Issa and his work is a thorn in the side of what the Israelis are, are doing in Hebron, in his hometown, and elsewhere uh, in that area. And it wouldn't be necessarily conspiratorial to think that there's a potential that the Israeli authorities asked the Palestinian Authority to detain Issa over his Facebook posts regarding the Palestinian Authority, sort of to outsource the dirty work a little bit and also to put him under greater pressure to cease his human rights work. This wouldn't be the first time that something like that has happened, and I think Issa would be a prime target for something like that. Yeah. He says um, says it broke his heart uh, being taken by his own people. Um, Okay, last question. Just what can people do to help say somebody hears this and they they don't know a thing about this this person i've been podcasting about for like four episodes and they don't know anything about that but they are interested in helping people who do this kind of work or they just see somebody out there now they know there's a thing called human rights a human rights defender and those kinds of people can be at risk and they see a case what what can they do for that kind of person I think it does depend on which defender and in which country they're in. There are some countries or governments that are more susceptible to international pressure and are more, you know, so for instance, you can read about, if you go to the Frontline Defenders website and you see an incident involving a Russian human rights defender, for instance, in Russia, chances are that no matter how many signatures we get onto a petition or how many calls are made or, you know, to the Russian embassy or whatever, or if you could get a member of Congress to speak up about this Russian activist, chances are that's not going to have any, you know, subsequent uh, subsequent impact for that defender's situation in terms of their the case against them and in some cases can even actually make it worse similarly with with china for instance china has largely been immune to international pressure when it comes to human rights defenders and, and targeting of human rights defenders but we have found that in other instances uh especially for in the united states getting congressional senatorial or administrative administration involvement to speak up about a case or getting media coverage for a case can have positive impact for defenders because those countries are either dependent on the United States for aid or for investment or politically speaking, it just doesn't look good. And so in those instances, certainly reaching out to your local congressperson and asking them to speak up in Congress to send a letter to make an inquiry with the embassy, uh, those kinds of things 
are, are quite useful and actually can be quite effective. And it doesn't require ten, uh, tens and hundreds of thousands of people to do it. So that's often a very effective and useful thing to do. Using social media, um, you know, seeing a case on our website, sharing it on your own feed, or your own, you know, tweeting out about it, uh, and just expanding out the visibility of the case. I mean, this is something defenders tell us all the time, is that the one thing that they're most afraid of is that nobody knows and nobody pays attention to what happened to them. So just tweeting things out, sharing things, things on social media, even if it doesn't change the prosecution of a defender, it gives them a sense of solidarity and it gives them a feeling of support. And that's something that defenders have told us time and time again, that it is critically important to them because, as I discussed earlier in the episode, one of the intentions of criminalizing defenders is to isolate them. So by getting that support and feel it and having it expressed from not just in their own community but from all over the world is something that psychologically is extremely important for defenders. Wow, this has been such a pleasure having Adam Shapiro here from Frontline Defenders. I have learned an incredible amount from talking to him. I really hope I'll get to talk to him again. And lucky for me, there are a lot of ways to keep up with this organization and with human rights defenders. Um, I'm going to recommend a couple of them. First, I recommend going to their website, which is so informative. You can search by issue. You can search by region. You can read you know, the complete case history of a human rights defender. And um, if you're like me, you might realize that you know a few of them. That website address is www frontlinedefenders.org. And the next thing I want to recommend is that you go to wherever you listen to podcasts, maybe Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever, and subscribe to their podcast. It's called Rights on the Line. They also have a comics zine that has recently been released on Instagram. So you can read about human rights defenders in comics form. Uh, The Instagram handle for that is at cypher underscore comics. That is at C-Y-P-H-E-R underscore comics. So definitely check that out. All right, that's it for now. Until next time, you have been listening to Talking Human Rights. I'm Heather Robertson-Gaston. Our guest has been Adam Shapiro of Frontline Defenders. You can find the show at www.talkinghumanrights.com.